Chapter Twenty Nine of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Twenty Nine. On the third morning after our arrival at Bangor, we set out for Snowdon. Snowdon or Errori is no single hill, but a mountainous region the loftiest part of which, called Iwerfa, nearly four thousand feet above the level of the sea, is generally considered to be the highest point of southern Britain. The name Snowdon was bestowed upon this region by the early English on account of its snowy appearance in winter, Irari by the Britons, because in the old time it abounded with eagles, Irari in the ancient British language signifying an eerie or breeding place of eagles. Snowdon is interesting on various accounts. It is interesting for its picturesque beauty. Perhaps in the whole world there is no region more picturesquely beautiful than Snowdon, a region of mountains, lakes, cataracts, and groves in which nature shows herself in her most grand and beautiful forms. It is interesting from its connection with history. It was to Snowdon that Vortigern retired from the fury of his own subjects, caused by the favour which he showed to the detested Saxons. It was there that he called to his councils Merlin, said to be begotten on a hag by an incubus, but who was in reality the son of a Roman consul by a British woman. It was in Snowdon that he built the castle, which he fondly deemed would prove impregnable, but which his enemies destroyed by flinging wildfire over its walls. And it was in the wind-beaten valley of Snowdon, near the sea, that his dead body, decked in green armour, had a mound of earth and stones raised over it. It was on the heights of Snowdon that the brave but unfortunate Llewellyn ap Griffith made his last stand for Cambrian independence, and it was to Snowdon that the very remarkable man, Owen Glendower, retired with his irregular bands before Harry the Fourth and his numerous and disciplined armies, soon, however, to emerge from its defiles and follow the foe, retreating less from the Welsh arrows, from the crags, than from the cold rain and starvation of the Welsh hills. But it is from its connection with romance that Snowdon derives its chief interest. Who, when he thinks of Snowdon, does not associate it with the heroes of romance, Arthur and his knights, whose fictitious adventures, the splendid dreams of Welsh and Breton minstrels, many of the scenes of which are the valleys and passes of Snowdon, are the origin of romance, before which what is classic has for more than half a century been waning and is perhaps eventually destined to disappear. Yes, to romance Snowdon is indebted, for its interest and consequently for its celebrity. But for romance Snowdon would assuredly not be what it at present is, one of the very celebrated hills of the world, and to the poets of modern Europe almost what Parnassus was to those of old. To the Welsh, besides being the hill of the Awen, or Muse, it has always been the hill of hills, the loftiest of all mountains, the one whose snow is the coldest, to climb to whose peak is the most difficult of all feats, and the one whose fall will be the most astounding catastrophe of the last day. To view this mountain, I and my little family set off in a calèche on the third morning after our arrival at Bangor. Our first stage was to Carnarvon. As I subsequently made a journey to Carnarvon on foot, I shall say nothing about the road till I give an account of that expedition, save that it lies for the most part in the neighbourhood of the sea. 
We reached Carnarvon, which is distant ten miles from Bangor, about eleven o'clock, and put up at an inn to refresh ourselves and the horses. It is a beautiful little town, situated on the southern side of the Menai Strait, at nearly its western extremity. It is called Carnarvon because it is opposite Mona, or Anglesey, Carnarvon signifying the town or castle opposite Mona. Its principal feature is its grand old castle, fronting the north, and partly surrounded by the sea. This castle was built by Edward I, after the fall of his brave adversary Llewellyn, and in it was born his son Edward, whom, when an infant, he induced the Welsh chieftains to accept as their prince, without seeing, by saying that the person whom he proposed to be their sovereign was one who was not only born in Wales, but could not speak a word of the English language. The town Carnarvon, however, existed long before Edward's time, and was probably originally a Roman station. According to Welsh tradition, it was built by Maxen Wledig, or Maxentius, in honour of his wife, Ellen, who was born in the neighbourhood. Maxentius, who was a Briton by birth, and partly by origin, contested unsuccessfully the purple with Gratian and Valentinian, and to support his claim led over to the continent an immense army of Britons, who never returned, but on the fall of their leader settled down in that part of Gaul generally termed Armorica, which means a maritime region, but which the Welsh call Llidau, or Lithuania, which was the name, or something like the name, which the region bore when Maxon's army took possession of it, owing, doubtless, to its having been the quarters of a region composed of barbarians from the country of Leth, or Lithuania. After staying about an hour at Carnarvon, we started for Llamberis, a few miles to the east. Llamberis is a small village situated in the valley, and takes its name from Peris, a British saint of the sixth century, son of Helig ap Glanog. The valley extends from west to east, having the great mountain of Snowdon on its south, and a range of immense hills on its northern side. We entered this valley by a pass called Nantaglo, or the ravine of the coal, and passing a lake on our left, on which I observed a solitary coracle, with a fisherman in it, were presently at the village. Here we got down at a small inn, and having engaged a young man to serve as guide, I set out with Henrietta to ascend the hill, my wife remaining behind, not deeming herself sufficiently strong to encounter the fatigue of the expedition. Pointing with my finger to the head of Snowdon, towering a long way from us in the direction of the east, I said to Henrietta, Daku erari. Yonder is Snowdon. Let us try to get to the top. The Welsh have a proverb, It is easy to say yonder is Snowdon, but not so easy to ascend it. Therefore I would advise you to brace up your nerves and sinews for the attempt. We then commenced the ascent, arm in arm, followed by the lad, I singing at the stretch of my voice a celebrated Welsh stanza, in which the proverb about Snowdon is given, embellished with a fine moral, and which may thus be rendered, Easy to say, Behold Errari, but difficult to reach its head. Easy for him whose hopes are cheery, to bid the wretch be comforted. We were far from being the only visitors to the hill this day. Groups of people, or single individuals, might be seen going up or descending the path as far as the eye could reach. The path was remarkably good, and for some way the ascent was anything but steep. On our left was the Vale of Llanberis, 
and on our other side a broad hollow, or valley of Snowdon, beyond which were two huge hills forming part of the body of the Grand Mountain, the lowermost of which our guide told me was called Moil Elia, and the uppermost Moila Kang Horion. On we went until we had passed both these hills, and come to the neighbourhood of a great wall of rocks, constituting the upper region of Snowdon, and where the real difficulty of the ascent commences. Feeling now rather out of breath, we sat down on a little knoll, with our faces to the south, having a small lake near us, on our left hand, which lay dark and deep, just under the great wall. Here we sat for some time, resting and surveying the scene, which presented itself to us, the principal object of which was the north-eastern side of the mighty Moila Kung Horion, across the wide hollow or valley, which it overhangs in the shape of a sheer precipice some five hundred feet in depth. Struck by the name of Moila Kung Horion, which in English signifies the Hill of the Counsellors, I inquired of our guide why the hill was so called. But as he could afford me no information on the point, I presumed that it was either called the Hill of the Counsellors from the Druids having held high consultation on its top in time of old, or from the unfortunate Llewellyn having consulted there with his chieftains, whilst his army lay encamped in the vale below. Getting up, we set about surmounting what remained of the ascent. The path was now winding and much more steep than it had hitherto been. I was at one time apprehensive that my gentle companion would be obliged to give over the attempt. The gallant girl, however, persevered, and in little more than twenty minutes from the time when we arose from our resting-place under the crags, we stood, safe and sound, though panting, upon the very top of Snowdon, the far-famed Wilthva. The Wilthva is about thirty feet in diameter, and is surrounded on three sides by a low wall. In the middle of it is a rude cabin in which refreshments are sold, and in which a person resides through the year, though there are few or no visitors to the hill's top, except during the months of summer. Below on all sides are frightful precipices, except on the side of the west. Towards the east it looks perpendicularly into the Dufferin or Vale, nearly a mile below, from which to the gazer it is at all times an object of admiration of wonder, and almost of fear. There we stood on the Wildva, in a cold, bracing atmosphere, though the day was almost stiflingly hot in the regions from which we had ascended. There we stood enjoying a scene inexpressibly grand, comprehending a considerable part of the mainland of Wales, the whole of Anglesey, a faint glimpse of part of Cumberland, the Irish Channel, and what might be either a misty creation or the shadowy outline of the hills of Ireland. Peaks and pinnacles and huge moils stood up here and there, about us and below us, partly in glorious light, partly in deep shade. Manifold were the objects which we saw from the brow of Snowdon, but of all the objects which we saw, those which filled us with delight and admiration were numerous lakes and lagoons, which, like sheets of ice or polished silver, lay reflecting the rays of the sun in the deep valleys at his feet. "'Here,' said I to Henrietta, you are on the top crag of Snowdon, which the Welsh consider, and perhaps with justice, to be the most remarkable crag in the world, which is mentioned in many of their old, wild, romantic tales, and some of the noblest of their poems, amongst others, in the Day of Judgment, by the illustrious Goronwy Owen, where it is brought forward in the following manner. I'll ir ar erari, cavartal howel ahi. The brow of Snowdon shall be levelled with the ground. 
and the eddying waters shall murmur round it. You are now on the top crag of Snowdon, generally termed Iwerthfa, which means a conspicuous place or tumulus, and which is generally in winter covered with snow, about which snow there are in the Welsh language two curious inglinion, or stanzas, consisting entirely of vowels with the exception of one consonant, namely the letter R. Oriw, Arur, Araurir, I, Rewi, Oriur, Ya, A, Rew, Rieti, Araira, Oriw, Riri, Ori, Iriri, Iur, Oira, Ora, Ar Oror, Wir, Arwa, Or Arwir, Arar, Aria, Oir Riu, Iroi, Riu, Araria. Cold is the snow on Snowdon's brow that makes the air so chill. For cold, I trow, there is no snow like that of Snowdon's hill. A hill most chill is Snowdon's hill, and wintry is his brow. From Snowdon's hill the breezes chill can freeze the very snow. Such was the harangue which I uttered on the top of Snowdon, to which Henrietta listened with attention. Three or four English, who stood nigh, with grinning scorn, and a Welsh gentleman with considerable interest. The latter, coming forward, shook me by the hand, exclaiming, Wirti Lidaweg? I am not a Llidawan, said I. I wish I was, or anything but what I am, one of a nation amongst whom any knowledge, save that relates to money-making and overreaching, is looked upon as a disgrace. I am ashamed to say that I am an Englishman. I then returned his shake of the hand, and bidding Henrietta and the guide follow me, went into the cabin, where Henrietta had some excellent coffee, and myself and the guide a bottle of tolerable ale. Very much refreshed, we set out on our return. A little way from the top, on the right-hand side, as you descend, there is a very steep path running down in a zigzag manner to the pass which leads to Capelkirig. Up this path it is indeed a task of difficulty to ascend to the Wirva, the one by which we mounted being comparatively easy. On Henrietta's pointing out to me a plant which grew on a crag by the side of this path some way down, I was about to descend in order to procure it for her when our guide, springing forward, darted down the path with the agility of a young goat, in less than a minute returned with it in his hand, and presented it gracefully to the dear girl, who, on examining it, said it belonged to a species of which she had long been desirous of possessing a specimen. Nothing material occurred in our descent to Clamberis, where my wife was anxiously awaiting us. The ascent and descent occupied four hours. About ten o'clock at night we again found ourselves at Bangor. End of chapter 29